Psalm 63, you'll see most likely a heading in your Bible. There's an inscription there. It's a Psalm of David. And your Bible will say something like, in the wilderness of Judah. That's where David finds himself. There's a couple times in David's life where he is out in the wilderness. But verse 11 tells us that he was a king at this time. And the time when David was a king in the wilderness was when he was running from Absalom. So again, we find ourselves in a similar situation looking at than we did a couple weeks ago. We were in Psalm 4. And in Psalm 4, we looked at how David was sleeping. David was sleeping in peace during the same time where he was running from Absalom, where his son was coming to take over the kingdom to maybe perhaps kill his own father. And David had wrote in Psalm 4, in peace do I lie down and sleep. And we kind of broke that apart and said, wow, that's crazy. But we looked at how we can have that same peace, understanding that God is bigger than our chaos, that God is bigger than our critics, and ultimately God is bigger than me, and God is bigger than anything in my life. And so that being said is what gives us confidence to sleep at night as well. So here in Psalm 63, we're going to get a picture of what fuels David during the day. When he's not sleeping in peace, where does David turn? What does David do. And this psalm highlights David's worship. This psalm is a pretty popular psalm in church history. It's been named um, the Psalm of Psalms. It's been looked at as a summary of psalms. If you want to get an idea of what the whole collection of psalms is about, read Psalm 63. There was one early church father that said, we should be reading Psalm 63 every day. So that's the magnitude of what this psalm can teach us. And I think what this psalm teaches us is what worship really looks like, what true worship really is. And so I'm hoping this morning to make just a few observations about what we can learn about the nature of worship. But I need to give you a couple of disclaimers uh, before we start. Number one, I have struggled a lot with this text struggle internally to process this, to see how this applies to my own life. So I don't speak from a place of having it all together or all figured out. I speak from a place of this is how I see David. This is what I know worship should be, not that I have it perfected at all. The second thing that I need to say is I usually try to preach in the, some main format of three main points that you can go home and take with you and that you can remember. That did not happen this time. And, and I think the, the, the comfort in there, hopefully for you, is understanding that there are some times that people should not be trying to impose their will on the text. The text is the text. And I'm going to stick with the text. So I'm not going to tell you how many points I have, because you might leave now. All right? So you're just going to have to stick with it and hang with me as we go through several points. But then the last thing I want to just tell you before we have a quick word of prayer and get into Psalm 63 this morning is that this sermon is very much front-loaded. It could definitely be a sermon on verse 1 and 2 of Psalm 63. So it's going to be almost time to go home, and we're going to say, and then we get to verse 3, and you're looking at how much is left, and we're going to kind of fly through the end there as we pull out some last thoughts. So hang with me. I, I think there's some important truths, and hopefully some encouraging things, and I know there's some challenging things that I've wrestled with this week. So 
join me with a word of prayer as we open and get into Psalm 63. Dear Lord, our prayer is that you would be with us here this morning. That you would teach us about you and about worship. Lord, I pray that your truth would be clearly taught and clearly heard and then clearly applied. Lord, be with us this morning as we continue to worship you through the reading and understanding of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sermon title is Parched. I wonder if there's ever time that you've been thirsty after preaching this morning, talking all through Sunday school, and I'm a little parched. But I wonder if you've been out in the yard doing yard work, out for a bike ride, out for a run, out exercising, and you're just hot, and you're tired, and you're thirsty. And you're just, man, if I just get that nice, cool glass of water, that's going to be so good. The setting of Psalm 63 is that for David. He's out in the wilderness. He's on the run. I'm sure he's hot. I'm sure he's tired. I'm sure he would love a cold glass of water. And so he cries out to God. Verse 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's interesting to know that David's body was parched. But it wasn't just his body that was longing physical refreshment. His soul was longing for refreshment as well. You know, you think about all the things that David could ask for in this moment. If I am on the run in the desert, my prayer is going to be something like, God, please let there be a stream somewhere nearby. God, If I could just find a fruit tree or you can send somebody to give me some stuff. Can I get a pillow, God? Like that, I think that's what my prayer would sound like if I was in the wilderness and in the heat. And, you know, I'm human there. David doesn't ask for food. He doesn't ask for water. He doesn't ask for clothes or shelter. He doesn't ask. Hey, God, it was really great when I was a king. Can you work all that back out so I can get back to the palace because this cave really isn't working out for me? Right? That's not the place that David is in. His desire is for God. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land. And here's the bulk of the message of what worship is. All of these things that pour out of Psalm 63. And the first one is this. Worship is a choice. When David cries out, Oh God, you are my God. This is a declaration of who David sees God as. And he says, God, you are my God. That's David's choice. That's how David relates to God. He says, God, you are my Elohim. It's this word that, that implies power and strength. But David just doesn't say, oh God, you are a God who is strong, or oh God, you are a God who are, is powerful. No, he says, oh God, you are my power and you are my strength. Oh God, you are my God. David says, God, I have placed you at the front and center of my life. I have chosen to worship you. And we can't go much farther if that's not you this morning. 
Because this message is about worshiping God. Worshiping the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's about worshiping Jesus. And if you're not there, I encourage you to listen to what worship should look like. But it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you if you haven't made the choice to follow God. But if you have, and you're saying, yeah, I'm here, I'm in church, I'm a Christian, I'm a God follower, and I'm a God worshiper, then I hope this morning that you'll be challenged. That you'll be challenged in your idea of worship. That you'll be challenged in how you think about and how you participate in this idea of worship. So worship is a choice. And worship can happen anywhere. David is in the middle of the wilderness. I don't know if he's in a cave or under a tree or just sitting in the hot sun. He's in the middle of one of the biggest trials in his life. And he chooses to worship. There's no official church building. There's no temple. There's no tent. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's nothing. There's nothing there. And David worships. He worships anyway, no matter where he was and no matter what circumstance he found himself in. And the thing about worship can happen anywhere, that's true for you and me as well. Worship can happen in your car. Worship can happen at work. Worship should happen at home. Worship happens all over the place. Worship happens in good times and worship happens in bad times. And there's a a warning slash encouragement in here that during this trial, David worshipped. And usually when you are faced with a trial, when I am faced with something uncomfortable, a struggle, something, a situation that I don't understand, my first response is usually not to worship. Oh God, you are my God. Thank you for making all this stuff go wrong in my life. It's usually not my first reaction, but we are... The example is to worship. No matter where you are, no matter what circumstance you are facing, we should train ourselves to go to God in worship. Speaking on this topic in this verse, Spurgeon says, Learn from this and do not say, I will get into communion with God when I feel better. But long for communion now. It is one of those temptations of the devil to tell you not to pray when you do not feel like praying. Pray twice as much then. That should be our attitude about worship anytime, any place. Worship begins with God. And again, it's one of these things that I think we inherently understand. Well, yeah, God is the beginning of our worship, but sometimes we skip over that. Because if we think about our, our communication, our normal way to relate with God, we say, well, God, can you do this for me? God, can you explain this for me? God, can you tell me why this is happening? God, I need this. Or God, will you help that person over there? And God, this person is sick and this person needs that. And that's a perfectly fine things to pray for. And we should. But that's not where worship begins. It's not where worship starts. Worship starts with God. It's not about what God has given us or can do for us. It's about who God is. At the core. To understand God is to understand eternal life. Jesus says the same thing as he's praying to God for his disciples in the garden hours before he faces crucifixion. 
He prays, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Worship begins with God. Jesus says, my desire, my heart for my disciples is that they know God. Not that they know about God, not that they know things that God said, not that they know things that God can do, but they know God. They know who God is. And I would ask you, do you know God? Do you know God, not about God? Do you know God? Because that is where worship begins. And knowing that's where worship begins drives us to understand that worship is a pursuit. David says, earnestly I seek you. The King James says, early I will seek thee. Was it early or earnestly? Yes. Both and. Same concept. If you're going to do it early, you're serious about it. If I do anything early, it's on purpose. The idea is worship doesn't happen naturally. Worship of God, I should say, doesn't happen naturally. It doesn't happen automatically. Worship isn't just something that we do on Sunday. Just because you walked in here and sat in a pew doesn't mean you're worshiping. It means you're attending. There's a difference between attending and worshiping. Attendance can be worship, but attendance is not always worship. You can't worship without attending, but attending does not mean worship, right? Because we should understand that worship isn't just a one-time experience. I just can't come do it once and then done. Worship is an experience. It's a journey. It's a path. It's a concept. It's It's a way of life. It's developed. It's cultivated over time. You don't get to David writing Psalm 63 by just be, going to church one day. Oh, let me write this psalm, God. Oh, this is a life of faith. This is a life of worship that pens these words. This is what worship looks like. It's a pursuit. And if I think about my personal pursuit of God, there's flaws, Right? There's stumbling blocks, there's pitfalls, there's I'm walking forward and then I'm walking backwards and it always isn't great. But I say the number one area that I struggle in, if we're being honest and transparent like we should be in church, is this idea of complacency. Right? Tozer wrote in his book, Pursuit of Holiness, Come near to the holy men and women of the past and you will soon feel the heat of their desire of God. They mourn for him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for him day and night, in season and out. And when they had found him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. I've got a good job, got a good wife, got good kids most of the time. It's real easy for me just to come in here and say, I'm worshiping. That's my struggle. I don't know where your struggle is, but we need to understand that worship is a pursuit. It begins with God and then it continues hard after God. Keep exploring this idea of earnestly seeking after God and you see that worship reveals our priorities. 
See, once we start talking about it, you have to put time and effort into worship. We start to talk about how busy we are. We start to talk about our calendar. We start to talk about all of our commitments and all of the things that we do and all of the things that we have to be at and the, and the constraints on our time and our family and our schedules. And we're just like, I, I get it, but what am I supposed to do? And I'll say this several times this morning, but as humbly as I can say this, if you're not spending time with God, it's not because you don't have time. It's because you don't think it's important. I read somewhere that our hunger determines our habits. If you're hungering, if you're pursuing after God, then you will find the time. You will make the time. You will pursue God, understanding that worship is a choice. And worship reveals our priorities. Which leads to a similar thought. Worship focuses on our true need. When David says, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Right? He's highlighting his desire for God. Our bodies can do a lot of great things. One thing they can't do very well is survive very long without water. A couple days tops. And he's, David is using this parallel of what his body feels and what our body longs for in the desert, just some water. And he uses that to just highlight the magnitude of his true need. And that's not water, it's God. He can't name something much more important to a body than water. And he says, but my soul thirsts for God. And so just as our bodies are dependent on water, our souls are dependent on God. And the problem becomes when we start to look for fulfillment and satisfaction in things other than God. Right? It happens even as we seek water ourselves. When you're thirsty, when you're parched, when you just want something cold to drink, do you know there's some things that you drink that actually make you more thirsty over time? Right? You're cutting the lawn and you come back and take your pick. You have a cold beer when you come back from uh, mowing your lawn. You can have a cold Dr. Pepper. Both those things are going to taste good at the moment because they're cold and refreshing. But whether it be the alcohol or the caffeine, they're soon going to make you more dehydrated than you started. And now all of a sudden, you're thirsty again. Because your thirst really wasn't quenched the way it needed to be. And so coffee, caffeine, any of those things, what you need is water. What you need is something pure. And, and that's a similar idea of what we need in our spiritual life. Where what we need is God. But so many times we're looking for satisfaction in things other than God. And so you can be on the good side of things or the bad side of things when people do all kinds of different things to look for satisfaction. So on the bad side of things, you have people looking for um, pleasure, satisfaction in substances, drugs, abuse of alcohol. Um, you have uh, things like addictions and um, pornography and, and all the things that are involved with that. And we look at it and say, oh, yeah, see, those things are bad and there's not fulfillment there. And we kind of inherently understand that, that those things are only temporary, that they may feel good for a minute or a week, but they don't last. 
But I'll tell you the same is true if you're on the good side of things. If you're looking for your fulfillment in your spouse, in your children, in your relationships with somebody, in your job, in your career, in your reputation, in your stuff, even though all those are perfectly good and acceptable things, if that's where you're looking for your soul fulfillment, it's going to come up short. My wife knows not to look to me for soul fulfillment. I do my best, but I'm a failed man. She needs to look to God as her satisfaction. I'm charged with helping her along the way. Which leads us to the next thought. Worship cannot be replaced. You can try. That's what we just were talking about. You can try to replace it with some of these other things. But when we do, ultimately we find that there's no substitute between worship of God. So what do I do? How am I supposed to deal with with all this other stuff? What if I don't want to desire God? What if I just like these other things better? What I would encourage you to do is to lean into God, to lean deeper into worship. Because I believe the more you lean into God, the more your desire for Him grows. And the more your desire for Him grows, the more your worship will increase. And the more that your worship increases, the more your satisfaction increases. And then all of a sudden you find yourself enjoying and being satisfied in the presence of God. But it's a pursuit. It takes time. It takes effort. But there is no substitute for the worship of God. In the second verse of Psalm 63, we see David, he's pursuing God right in the wilderness. And we said that worship can happen anywhere. But look at verse 2. It says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Well, there's not a sanctuary. He's in the wilderness. He's thinking back to when he did worship. What that looked like. And, and, And the ark, actually, the Levites brought the ark out to David when he was in the wilderness. And he said, guys, you got to bring it back. It goes to Jerusalem. That's where it's supposed to be. And so they bring it back. And David remembers and thinks about when when he conquered Jerusalem years earlier, they brought the ark back. And they put the ark in a prominent place in Jerusalem. They constructed this big tent. And David's like, God, you're God. You, you You need more than a tent. We need to build you a big temple. And God said, no, David. Remember, you're a sinful dude. You made some mistakes. Bloodshed will never leave your house. I can't have you building me a house but your son will do it. But I say that to understand that worship is connected to a place. Even though It can happen anywhere, but there is a place that it's connected to. There was a place for God's people to gather around this ark, around this tent, and then in the future, around and in the temple. And then now, as we gather here as a church, worship belongs here. It is connected to this place. And as David thought about his place of worship, he longed for it. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And so there's a, there's a few lessons here for us as we consider worship at the chapel in this place. We're not so much caught up in the place or the building, but it should be the place where people regularly experience His presence and His power. 
David wasn't saying, oh, the tent was so nice. Oh, the ark was so beautiful. He says, beholding your power and your glory. When he went to church, David experienced the power and the glory of God. This should be what drives the chapel of the lake. My desire is for the chapel to be such a place that when you are not in this room, that when you are not in this building or connected to this people, for whatever reason, you're longing to be here where you can worship God at church. That our worship together is what fuels us as we seek after God, as we seek to know God more, as we experience and feel God's presence among us, as we catch a vision of God and His plan for us, His people. And this is why worship becomes not just a thing to go to on Sunday, not just an important thing, but something that is central to who we are. Worship together as a body, as a church around God. And so since we find ourselves together in this building, in this room, I just want to take a sidebar for a minute and talk about some things that I believe are important at worship at Chapel of the Lake. So if you're visiting with us here this morning, this doesn't necessarily apply to you, other than this is where I see worship being fulfilled in the church and how it should be fulfilled at Chapel of the Lake. And if you are a chapel person here, if you have committed to this body, this is your place of worship. I would ask you to consider these things. These are my personal thoughts. I may step on your toes, but no, my toes have been stepped on first by God. And then you can talk to Pastor Keith if you have issues, right? <laughs> all right, so we got we got to move through these, all right? But in order for this place to be that kind of environment where we're looking back and we're longing for our worship as a family, I think we all carry some responsibility to how we worship together. How we meet not only with one another, but how we meet with God. So the first one is that we would come prepared for worship. That means we consider how late we stay up on Saturday night. We consider where we go, what we watch, when we go to bed. We think about what time we have to get up on Sunday morning. We think about trying really hard to get to worship service on time, or better yet, early. I know, I've got kids. But I think we have a responsibility to come to worship prepared as best we can. That we not only show up on time, but that we take a minute, a pause, to consider why we're here. That as we walk into this place, we pray as we enter. We focus ourselves on the task of worship. That we have committed to come together as a body to one another and that we have committed to come regularly so that we can worship together. If we've been called to be a part of the body as Paul tells us we have. He also says we're all important and vital for the functioning of that body. So we are committed to be here, to be prepared, and to be here as much and as often as we can. 
the leadership has the responsibility, especially in being prepared for worship, in the way that we select songs and scripture readings, the specials that we do, the other pieces that fit together in the worship service, that the messages that we bring are God-honoring and Christ-exalting. That's a responsibility here at the chapel for the leadership of the church. We have a responsibility to love one another. That means that when we come into this building, we are not identified first by our ethnicity or our job or our status or our looks or our clothes or whatever, but that we would look at one another and we would call each other first brother or sister. Because that defines who we are in this room, that we are His. And we are here together to worship Him. We find fellowship and acceptance and encouragement and admonition as the body of Christ comes together. As humbly as I can say this, I believe we have a responsibility to limit distractions. Both for our own benefit and the benefit of those around us. So that's why at least when Pastor keeps preaching, we don't play cell phone games. Right? Where we're not scrolling on our phones. Where we're not just getting up and down and moving up and back and getting a drink and going to the bathroom and doing all this stuff and limiting distractions. And this isn't so we have some sterile environment. We didn't put, we have a, if you didn't know, we have a live feed of the service down the hallway in case, you know, kids just need to be kids. And that's not because we're saying, oh, everyone has to be quiet and rigid. And No, I'm saying we just want to be a place where we can focus. Focus on God. I love hearing kids and having kids involved and we encourage kids to be here. Sometimes they need to run around. We get that. We want to, make sure our focus can remain and stay on God and His worship. That means when we sing, we're not having side conversations. We're not being distracting to that person next to us, to the person behind us as they watch, watch us talk. That's why our sound crew works and comes in and they come in early and they practice their stuff and make sure that there's not a glitch and and it happens, but we try to limit distractions so our focus remains on God. But we have a responsibility to be purposeful in our worship. That means we not only come prepared to worship, but we come prepared to engage with people. We come prepared to actually engage in prayer. I wonder if you expected to meet God this morning, to hear from God this morning? Or do you just show up because it's Sunday? Worship says, I am purposeful in my worship. I'm engaged with the message, with the prayers. I'm even engaged with the singing. Even if I'm not a singer, I can still be engaged. Worship is not a passive activity. It's just not. Last thing I'll mention, and we'll get off this little sidebar that we have a responsibility to maintain our building as a house of worship. And if you didn't know, we've been spending a lot of money this year updating our building. And I'm excited about that. And it's not so we can say, look at us and look at our nice stuff and this and that, but I believe our building is a reflection of our view of God. And we're going to exalt God as much as we can. And so we got new carpet. We're getting new lights soon. We've got stuff redone in the foyer. We're getting the fellowship hall repainted and stuff's happening down there. Our bathrooms are getting redone. 
Like, that's exciting. That's exciting, not just because, oh, it's nice and new, but because we want to make sure that when you walk in here, you know the God we serve is important. And that we're not putting anything, any barriers in your way of hearing the gospel of Jesus. And if you're wondering about those projects, come to the meeting next week. Come to the business meeting. You could add that to the list of responsibilities, but I won't. Come to the meeting. Know what's happening. Hear the stories of lives that are being changed and the things like the building being updated. But we'll move on. Verse 3. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. question becomes, would you rather be with God than live on this earth? You know what you're supposed to say? Well, of course I would love to be with God. But I think we really kind of have to wrestle with that thought. Would you really rather be with God than on this earth? Would you really want God more than you want your family? Do you really love God more than you love your job, your health, your stuff? Do you find more pleasure in God than you do good food or a good sports game or a book or some experience? David knows that God's love is greater. And it's that word has said. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That love is more than anything on this world. What do you do if you're not there? If you're honestly like, I don't, I don't know if I could say that. And I think that makes you human. But my encouragement to you, again, would be dive into God. Dive deeper into God's love. Start reading the Bible. Start a daily reading plan. Join a Sunday school class. Join a Bible study, a home group. Find ways to get deeper into God. Remember, worship is a response that's continually cultivated over time and with effort. And so it's not like you're just going to be able to flip a light switch and then all of a sudden, I love God more than life itself. I don't think that's natural. I don't think that's how it happens. But I think it's a, a pursuit and a continual thing. And we've said this in a couple different ways already, that worship rises above circumstances because I know God's love is bigger and greater than anything. It frees me from being tied to the stuff of this world. I can rest in God's love. I can rest in His faithfulness, His sovereignty, His hands. That's worship. And then at the end of verse 3, he says, My lips will praise you. And then he continues in verse 4, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Here we learn that worship is expressive. A while ago we did a question and answer series, and someone asked, What about Lifting hands or raising hands. Is that biblical? Right here. Yes. Is it expression of worship? Worship is expressive. I would say if worship is happening on the inside, it should show on the outside. Now, that's going to look different for different people. I'm not really a hand raiser kind of person. It has to do with how I grew up, my background, and all kinds of stuff. But the point is that it should be evident that you are worshiping, that you are engaging with God as we worship. So we're coming to the end here, but just this idea of worship being expressive. 
Now, the point is, if something's happening on the inside, let's make sure something is happening on the outside. Verse 5, as we run through these last few things here, verse 5 says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Speaking to worship, bringing contentment. And we said this again already, where if I understand that worship is better than life itself, that leads me to be content. Which is not the same as complacent, but I am content with God. Who He is and where I am with Him. He moves to verse 6. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, Learn that worship engages the mind. And David is about to fall asleep, but he's meditating on God. This word meditating, found out, actually is the same word used for how cows and sheep eat. This concept of their stomachs are in four compartments and they chew it and they chew it and chew it and then they regurgitate it and cut and chew and that kind of verb of chew or whatever that whole process is, that's meditate. It's the same thing. And it's the idea of this is what David is doing with the law of God, with God's word. He's meditating on it. He's chewing on it. Worship isn't just about expressiveness. I can raise my hands and now I'm worshiping. No. You may raise your hands, but you also engage your mind. All the components are there. You cannot worship, I would contend, without engaging your mind. Worship isn't just a show-up on Sunday thing. And that's maybe the third or fourth time I've said that. It's not just a show-up on Sunday morning thing. It's something that engages our mind, engages our senses. And we can't worship properly if we don't have an understanding, a knowledge of who God is. And so we'll find new depths of worship if we'll commit to learning and growing in our understanding of God and worship. And then he gives us two aspects of worship in verse 7. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Worship remembers. He says, you have been my help. What fuels David's continual worship is his understanding that God's been with me in the past. And I know he's going to continue to be with me today so I will sing for joy. Worship brings joy. A joy that the world doesn't know. This is the end result, that we have a joy that is founded in something that is eternal and unchanging. And then in verse 8, David says, My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Don't get the wrong idea this morning that worship is something that you can will yourself to do. It's God empowers your worship. God fuels your strength. That's who we rely on. That's how David got through this trial. That's how we should be getting through our trials. We rely on God. That's worship. And then he finishes out the psalm. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. For the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by himself shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This isn't David saying, ha ha, my enemies are going to get it in the end. 
This is David trusting in God. I trust that he's going to work it out, that he's going to take care of out there. So I will trust in God. I will rejoice in God because I know he is sovereign. He is in control and he will always do what is right. It's, it's worship that gives us that perspective that points us to that eternal concept of what we're here and, and why we're here. And so ultimately it comes down to these thoughts. What we love becomes what we worship. So what do you love? Because you're on your way to worshiping that. And we become what we worship. Romans puts it clearly. We can either be conformed to the image of Christ or we can be conformed to the image of this world. The path is worship. We were designed and built for worship. The question is, who will you worship? I hope that you will find refreshment, that your thirst would be quenched in your worship and time with God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that David's a guy who doesn't have it all together. But man, he gets worship right. And he didn't always do it right. But there's hope for us as we consider worship in our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us keep your love at the center of everything we do. That we would keep our love for you, our focus in worship that you would help us develop and continue a consistent time of intimate fellowship with you as individuals and as a church. And Lord, I pray that you would help us integrate worship into every area of our lives. That it's not just a church thing. That it happens everywhere and all the time that we worship you in both spirit and in truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.